This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and fishing accessories. Tech, precision, ingenuity, legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is the February Room. Welcome to the February Room. Today I have the great pleasure to sit with Greg Munther. Greg is a former Forest Service biologist and district ranger. Thank you so much for sitting with me today and inviting me into your beautiful home. Looking forward to it, Lauren. First off, I mean, these views, we are sitting right over my shoulder is, um, is a river. And it's beautiful outside and this is a really great little paradise you have at in your home. It is, and fishing's pretty good back there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, you've been fishing for how many years? Well, I was gifted. My dad got me fishing. I can remember, well, I guess my great-grandmother took me fishing with literally a pin and a string in Washington State in a little lake near Seattle. 
And then I, one of my favorite memories is my granddad taking me to perch fishing in Loika Lake, north of Spokane. We live near there, and and so it's been a ride for seventy years. Uh, it's been a great, a great adventure, and I say my fly rod takes me to so many interesting places. Is there a place in particular that is one of my favorite memories being on the river? I have some great favorite memories, and and one is with a dear friend, his lifetime friend, Tom Kovalicki. We were fishing for tarpon in Costa Rica off the mouth of the Rio Colorado, which is. It's actually in the ocean, but it's it's uh, right at the mouth of the river, and the and the and the, the the ocean there is 65 feet deep. But you're fishing about 30 feet deep with a fly rod, so it means heavy weighted lines and heavy flies, and you're trying to counteract the drifts of the wind and the and the tide and the river, and you're trying to get your fly down. But when you get it down 30 feet, there's enormous tarpon and hundreds of them. And so the trick is getting down. So my favorite memory with my long-term friend Tom was we'd had a very successful day. I'd landed three tarpon between 75 and 125 the day before. And we went out the last day and it was the last 15 minutes and the sun's starting to set. And both of us hooked up on tarpon immediately. And we both had them on. And tarpon, of course, are famous for jumping clear in the water. They both jumped, our lines crossed. We were that close together, lines crossed, and we both lost our tarpon. <laughs> and I thought, what a wonderful way to end up a trip. It was almost a fairy tale, but it was a true story, and it was a great adventure for both of us. Yeah. Well, and tarpon are just, like you said, I mean, they're fun fighting, fighting fish. And, and 65 feet deep water, they are really hard to move. Imagine yourself with a big log laying it down at the bottom of 65 feet, and you're trying to pull it up with a with a fly rod, well then try it with a fish that's actually moving too. You know, it's, it's a challenge, it's 45 minutes to an hour and a half per fish. So the day I landed three, I put my rod down and I said, no mas, I don't want any more. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done for the day. There's always a lot of elements going against you when you're trying to catch the, the monster fish, but yeah. it's, a, I mean, maybe it's considered a catch. Yeah. Even if, uh... I, I, you know, the jump is everything on tarpon, the, the tarpon experts you know they t- and and the and the dedicated fly rod people getting that first big jump you know is is really what they're after totally yeah i mean i i mean just being out in that big water too can just be a little bit overwhelming and to think that you have to like of all the species out there to try and target that one it's pretty yeah. um, it's pretty exciting to well, get well when you see these schools of tarpon rolling right not very far from your boat you know they're there it's just a matter of getting to them and this fellow had a our guide had a spinning rod with a big jig on it, and he would keep saying, deeper, deeper. And uh, we'd say, we're trying, we're trying. And, and he said, deeper, deeper. And he would get out his uh, spinning reel and lower the jig down 35 feet and jig it twice, and boom, <laughs> have another tarpon on. Deeper, deeper. <laughs> uh, so you have pretty, um, you had an incredible job. And I mean, a job that a lot of people want to do, and especially in the outdoor industry. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the forest? It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. actually, uh, I, I was adrift as a, in high school, but I loved being outdoors. It was just my life is being outdoors. And, and uh, so I decided that what was I gonna do in college? And uh, 
So I decided I'd be a dentist because dentists will only work four days a week and make a lot of money. So I thought, that's my kind of job. Well, I sat up in my dorm room the first year, looking outside a window three stories up, and I thought, geez, this could be my office. This is not going to work. So then I switched into forestry and wildlife and fisheries and, and ended up with a master's degree in fisheries. I worked on uh, in Hell's Canyon on my master's degree, and so then I was able to end up as a fish biologist for the Forest Service. And so I ended up uh, having at one time four national forests responsible for fisheries and four national forests in, in western Montana. And I finally got that paired down with other people coming in and then took on a district ranger job at, uh, at administering 330,000 acres of national forest west of Missoula up to the Idaho line. And that's great because you had timber, mining, recreation, roads, um, wildlife, watershed, everything. So it's like having your own ranch, but instead of having to make money, you spent money. <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine that you went to probably like the most remote areas. You have some pretty incredible fishing stories of well, these we remote have, waters. You know, I, yeah, I mean, we, we basically, uh, the ranger district is 330,000 acres. It includes about a 90,000 acre recommended wilderness, a great burning wilderness. So there is... There's still bull trout in those streams. It's wild. There's no no roads in any of it on purpose. And our objective, of course, is to keep it in wilderness stat or qualified for wilderness until Congress can act uh, one way or the other. So, yeah. And so fishing's always good. And, of course, I'm always looking for the most remote areas to go fish. And I've found some tremendous uh, opportunities in Alaska and Russia and Argentina and all, you know, uh, all over the place. But I'm always looking for a place where the other person hasn't got there yet. So, yeah. And are you still trying to find those places right now? Yeah, I'm still uh, on the agenda to fly out in late August. We float in another river. Uh, uh, this river is, I've been to about 12 years ago and I got to tell you a story about this. So I turned 65 on that trip and silver fishing was fantastic and um, that particular trip it can vary depending on the runs and so on but I decided on my 65th birthday I would try to catch 65 silvers on top water all on top and so I'd been catching fish for a few days and my my fingertips were just hamburger and uh, I couldn't I, it was hurt to let any fish go. I was just didn't look forward to catch. And I got to 56 about mid-afternoon, and I couldn't stand it anymore. And I finally just reached down with my pliers and cut my hook off at the bend and just have the fish pull it down the rest of the day. I couldn't stand to take another fish. So I didn't get 65, but I did have many more than 65 pull-downs. So that, that's the way it can be. And then other trips up there, you know, you, you, you might not get any fish on top. It just depends on the year and the situation. But this year we're taking one-person boats. Four of us are taking one-person boats. So we everybody's kind of self-contained with a one-person boat. And there's four of us. We're a 100-mile float. We'll be on the water, I don't know, eight, nine days. And, and uh, uh, we hope to catch silver skin. How many would you have to catch if it was your birthday? 
it would be 77 this year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's getting tougher. <laughs> You're like, that number keeps going up, and it never goes down. You can't go back in you time. Can't go back. <laughs> well, um, you get to 100, you get to start over, though, one. <laughs> oh, good call. Well, you, still, well you, will, you are not slowing down, so it's probably will be happening. Yeah. You can start yeah. it back at one. Yeah. What do you love about your job back in the day like what 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 other than being able to not go into an office what made you want to be a fish biologist well you know you care about the resource i mean the resource we need to hand the resource to the next generation and in hopefully as good a condition as you've found it and it's really rewarding um, a lot of my job was interacting with uh, as a fish biologist with other proposals timber sale, road construction, mines, all that sort of thing, and try to do the best to try to keep the habitat intact as much while these these projects move forward. So it was a lot of interaction with people a lot, you know, and trying to convince them and show them the interaction between the very headwater streams and the bigger streams where they might be. And then sometimes uh, it took shocking fish way up in the headwaters to show them that there were fish way up there in these little streams that went dry in the summer except for some pools but they're little cutthroat up in those headwaters that are are going to go out the next spring and be the fish of the future so yeah i kind of like what you just said that you want to make sure that you leave it better than the way that you left it that the reverse getting better did you feel that when you left that the waters are getting better or do you think there's more upward battles that need to constantly be well, the battles are ongoing, and there's some tremendous work in restoration and people trying to secure uh, water in streams that previously were dewatered with irrigation and trying to uh, allow fish movement with culvert replacements with bridges that fish can move through and and streamside vegetation, better management of streamside vegetation. There's all kinds of positive work. On the other side, there's all these challenges, which are more and more demands for the same amount of water. Um, water is going to be the new gold of the future. It will be uh, as, as our, our uh, population grows and demands. And then, uh, quite frankly, climate change is warming some streams to the point where no matter what you do, you uh, are going to lose fish. And that's been documented recently with bull trout in streams where the stream hasn't changed at all, but they're losing bull trout. And the main thing that's changed is the streams are getting too warm for bull trout. So those are, are big challenges, you know. Um, they'll be ongoing and the future generation is gonna have to stand up and decide what's important to them, so, yep. Well, and for you, a lot of your looking at your home and we went downstairs, you do everything very traditional. Why is that so important to do things from the ground up, I guess? Well, you know, it's, I, 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 to me, Anything I do is, is the process. Um, way past how many catch fish I catch or how, what I kill with my bow. It's, it's mainly what, what the process leads up to this complete package of the experience. And it's the country you're fishing in, you know, I mean, the, the quality of the, the scenery, the quality of the stream, uh, tying your own flies, uh, appreciating the materials that go into tying. I mean, shooting your own birds that you use to tie flies and same thing, shooting an elk that you used to build arrows with and, and all that sort of thing. It's all part of the process and, and trying to make it as challenging as possible. I mean, I, I can go out with a bobber and a worm and catch a lot of fish, but I'm still, you know, trying to tie my own flies and, and trying to fool them with that. So, yeah. 
Is there a fly that you really like tying right now? Well, I, you know, I'm real partial to big fish. And in Montana, the biggest fish are in lakes. And so you're always looking at the 10, 12 pound fish. Where am I gonna go catch a 10 or 12 pound fish? And there's a few places in Montana you can do that. And so I'm always trying to tie the ultimate lake fly. So I'm big on marabou because it flows in the water a little bit. And uh, so I have this damselfly imitation that's tied with marabou. That's a very simple fly, but it has caught hundreds of fish. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I guess that's probably my favorite go-to fly because it results in some really big fish. Do you have a good uh, lake trout story catching one? Well, <laughs> last week I caught four fish, eight to nine pounds. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a lake uh, with that same fly I was just telling you about, marabou leech fly and, or, or damsel fly. And, uh, but the, the, just to keep you honest, I went out yesterday in the same lake, didn't catch fish. So, <laughs> but there are 15 pound fish in there. So that's, you know, it keeps you going. Are you, do you wake up every day being like, I'm going to get outside? I mean, Absolutely. actually even doing this interview, you're like, I think we can, but I might be outside. So is that yeah. like you wake up? Is that you're just like, we when need you, to get When outside. you're approaching 77, you only got so many days outside left. And I want to make sure every day I am capture the opportunities and not pass up any opportunity. So, um, yeah, if, if, if the streams are right and the weather's good and I'm gone, you know, even if the weather's crummy and the streams are bad, I'm still gone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's always a place to... To search and try, and, and uh, I, I just thoroughly love outdoors. I set, put my careers, I never wanted to get promoted to a point where I couldn't kick dirt every day. I wanted to be out where real stuff is real. So, yeah. Well, and you also worked with backhunters and anglers. Yeah. What, what was your role with them? Well, backcountry hunters and anglers, I started the Montana chapter as a chairman, and I was with the organization in a leadership role for 10 years and I just the last couple of weeks I finally stepped down uh, but uh, my role is basically because I care so much about habitat and after I retired I wanted to keep active in the field and wanted to do what I could to help habitat for both fish and wildlife and I, and, and backcountry hunters and anglers has uh, is, is a real public lands advocate for keeping public lands uh, uh, available to people and accessible to people and of course provide excellent habitat uh, along the way and so I thought I could help in that way and so that's how I got involved and it's grown I mean geez we're up to 50,000 people or something that belong to backcountry hunters and anglers and we have in Montana we have 3,000 people and and uh, so yeah it's been a good run. Yeah, I think I even went to the grocery store, and there's a beer for them. <laughs> yeah, we have, absolutely. You know, we have, yeah, we they're have really growing. Lands, they're now... We have a public lands beer. Highlander Beer Company is produces public land beer, and yeah, yeah. And I'm real partial to another beer. I mean, really enjoy the beer. It's made by Lewis and Clark over in Helena, but it's uh, actually called Backcountry Beer. <laughs> and and so I. I really, it's one of my favorites. It's down in my refrigerator downstairs right now. Um, I, yeah, it's a good beer too. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because in the beginning you said that you did uh, some work over at Hell's Canyon. Yes. That, that is such an interesting place because I went there, gosh, it's been probably 15 years. 
But um, I think you kind of get stuck with uh, the Missoula rivers and there's these other great areas like Hell's Canyon that, I don't know, it kind of sometimes gets a little bit overshadowed with right. the rivers. Like yeah. what, is, what did you experience in Hell's Canyon? Well, Hell's Canyon, I was fortunate to be there in my early 20s, so I was in the 60s. That was before jet boats, before all the people, and we still had strong salmon and steelhead runs and, and it's a mile deep canyon. And literally, um, I, I basically had the river to myself, and I was uh, scuba diving at night, keeping track. I swam up along sturgeon that were longer than me at night with my little light, uh, which, I mean, they're, they're very passive fish. They're harmless, but, but there's, it's, it's, you turn, look over, and there's a fish laying there that's bigger than you. It's pretty phenomenal. But it was just a quality. We had, you know, otters coming down chirping in the evenings and, and you'd have to sit on these sandbars and have it all to yourself. And, and uh, it's hot. I mean, it can be, I found a cave I could retreat to in the daytime and I could hang out. But I spent a week at a time working on my master's there and uh, tagging fish, shocking fish, everything. Yeah. So, yeah. What an incredible experience. Yeah, have you ever... Good. Had a moment being in the middle of nowhere where, I don't know, came across a bear or a moose or... Well, I've had lots of bear encounters. Anyone said, well, of course, a lot of bear encounters and moose encounters, but more tragedy for them than... Geez, I took my grandson on the Alagnac River a number of years ago on a float trip. We had, he counted, I didn't count, 38 bears under 50 yards. But these bears are, are... pretty passive they're not hunted and they have no fear of humans but on the other hand they're really into fish they really so they really aren't a threat in fact one tried to grab my fish while it was on the line and uh yeah but it was it was fun that i mean but we in montana you know uh we've got bears on almost all the mountain ranges now in montana and uh and it it, it really does it's 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 pertinent that you pay attention before you go and be smart and when I'm in Alaska, uh, I'm quite emphatic that anybody that's fishing with me does not bring a fish into camp. We, if you want to, and you don't put it in a boat because that fish, that barrel smell fish in your boat and go looking for the fish, even though it may not be there, it smells as fish. So we, if I'm going to keep a fish for dinner, we tie it with a rope and drag it to where we're going to camp. And we fly it away from camp so that all that stuff's away from camp. We might cook it in camp, but we wash our dishes away from camp. And we've had bears walk, you know, within 20 feet of our tents at night. You know, just tracks are there in the morning, and they have no reason to stop because we take pretty good precautions with food and attractants, you know. And so, yeah, it's been, I've only been chased once, and it was pretty intimidating. Uh, but I don't want to go through that. Moose, probably a cow moose is probably as dangerous as any animal out there. A cow with a calf, you want to be careful. I mean, they they are big, and they are very protective. And uh, I've seen them go berserk just by stopping a car near them. They just, yeah, they're wild. It's so funny that you say that. Um, my sister and I were running up Blue Mountain, and we kind of turned this path, and we looked up, and we're like, oh, that's just a really funny-looking horse. And because, you know, you're just not expecting, you think you're going to see horses up there. And as we got a little bit closer, I was like, oh my gosh, it's it's a calf moose. And Ooh. all of a sudden, the mom Ooh. steps behind. And I was like, oh, yep, these are moose. But, you know, <laughs> the calves look like horses. Right, right. And so we slowly turned around and went down. And uh, it was interesting because this other gentleman was 
going on a hike and we're like, hey, just to let you know, there's there's a moose up there with her calf, so you might not want to go up there. And he's like, I brought my camera. I was like, oh, well, when I read about you in the newspaper, <laughs> I'm going to be the one in the comments that write, I told you not to go up there. But I, nothing ever came of it. But yeah. yeah oh, was... yeah. You want to be careful. We had, I had a <laughs> funny experience. It was in the Great Burn. I had two Spanish kids staying with us who were actually friends of our exchange student from Spain. But, um, I took them into the Great Burn, and they'd never, of course, had any experience in that kind of country. So one wanted to go fishing with me to a lake a couple miles away. The other one wanted to stay in camp. And I said, well, be sure to stay, you know, I mean, if there's moose, be careful. Because there's, there's a lot of moose tracks, so I knew there were going to be a good chance that they could have a moose come through camp. And he, I, he said, I said, the best thing to do is get up a tree if a moose comes. The moose can't climb trees. So we came back several hours later. And I said, well, how'd it go? He says, I've been up a tree for hours. He says, every time I try to get out of the tree, I, he said, I tried to get my camera, but I, another moose would come by and I had to go back up the tree. <laughs> tree for hours. He got a lot stronger got, after spending. Yeah, he has some good memories. Take back to Spain, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Well, looking at all your pictures in your home, there's one that particularly sticks out is that picture with you and your grandson. And it looks like you're literally hugging this enormous fish. You have to exp tell me this story. Well, this story is pretty fantastic. I took my grandson, who was, you know, I don't know, 10 or something at the time, and and he'd never caught a fish over six inches, and I took my wife, and we went to British Columbia, Central British Columbia, on a salmon stream. But I was mainly getting them into chum salmon and pink salmon, and which they could catch pretty easily. And I took them on a float trip one day, and I had my spay rod with me, and I uh, but I was mainly getting them into fish, and my uh, I looked at this really good pool, and there was an outfitter fishing it out of a drift boat, or his clients were on shore, but they were had stopped, and it looked like a really good uh, pool for Chinook salmon. And I asked this outfitter, I said, "Do you mind if I start at the top and and above you?" And he said, "No, my guys can't reach these fish anyway." He said, "If they're in there." Well, I hooked three and landed one that was 40 pounds, and and my grandson and and wife were there to document it all, and it was great. It was a good fish, and, and uh, on a fly was, was pretty fantastic. So, yeah, it was a good trip. Yeah, what fly did you use to catch that? You know, you, big hooks, uh, sharp <laughs> hooks, and, uh, you know, probably, I can't remember exactly, but it was, I, I know my favorite is like a, a three-aught hook with with a lot of marabou on it. Cherise and blue is a good combination, yeah. But uh, getting it down in their face means usually putting some lead on it somewhere along the way. What did your grandson think about it when it oh, came in? Oh, it was in? a monster. Well, when you see it planing out in the water before it came in, you can see this big, dark fish, you know, shadow kind of, you know, created by this monster. He said, it's a monster, Grandpa. It's a monster. <laughs> so it seriously it was, looks like a monster. Yeah, it was a good fish. <laughs> the fact that they were like holding it, it's like a big old hug, and then it you're just is. like, oh, yeah. goodbye, old it friend. Was, and I was just so happy. My grandson's now grown and, and has his own. But we've had some great outdoor experiences together, so it's been good. Is, um, I know that you've traveled everywhere. Is there another place on your bucket list where you'd like to go fishing? Well, the whole world, uh, you know, if you, if you, somebody comes along with a different checkbook, I can't go about anywhere. But we've, we just booked a trip back to the Bahamas to take my family to the Bahamas next spring and uh, 
hopefully my my daughter who's taken up fly fishing and her her husband are they're pretty enthusiastic fly fishermen and we just got them a couple of outfits fly outfits and and hopefully by then they'll be confident enough to stock a bonefish and catch a bonefish on their own out in Bahamas. So that's on the bucket list for next year. So yeah. Well, then I'll have to inter- interview them for the podcast to tell me about their interesting fishing stories. <laughs> Absolutely. I want them to be able to tell you about their first bonefish. Absolutely. So yeah. it seems to you for your whole life is about creating traditions, not even just for your daughter and grandson, but it's also for creating traditions for the future, future generation. Yeah, I guess maybe... Uh, you know, by example, maybe sometimes people get a spark if they see what you're doing. And I've already had some positive feedback about some of the stuff I've done uh, with traditional archery. You know, people who have been shooting high gadget stuff that are inspired to go back and do their own and make their own bows and make their own arrows and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a lead by example, I guess, more than anything. Yeah, because I mean, if I mean, if the traditions start to leave with the people who are only know it, you know, you got to share the wealth and that knowledge. Absolutely, I think it's and 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 fishing the same way. I'm, one of my some of my most joyous moments are taking people who've never fished before, or taking um, youth out that have never fished before. You know, and and it doesn't matter what you catch. Uh, it's the fact that you're out there doing it and and get the thrill of being out there. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for inviting me into your beautiful home and sharing your incredible stories. And I hope that, you know what, you can take my kids and you can share. Oh, I love it. Actually, I do. I love, I love kids and I, I get so excited. And you know, what I found out is if you make a big deal out of it there, it's a big deal to them. You know, if you catch a, a six inch perch on a worm and you make a big deal, they are thrilled to death. My one last story. Yes. My grandson, again, I took a little urban bond in Boise where he lived, and he never really had a chance to fish much. So I took him down to the urban pond and got a little bitty hook, little bitty worms, and put on and caught little bitty pumpkin seeds, probably, uh, you know, 20 of them. And he finally caught this rainbow trout. And he says, Grandpa, what is it? What is it? And I says, a rainbow trout. He said, a rainbow trout? And he, <laughs> I said, yeah, it's a rainbow. He said, I said, do we want to let it go? He said, no, Grandpa. I said, well, are we going to take it home and eat it? He said, no, Grandpa. I said, well, what are we going to do with it? He says, I'm taking it home and saving it forever. <laughs> He's taking his memory home with him. What did you guys end up doing with the fish? We took it home and put it in the freezer. I don't know, it's forever. <laughs> Is it still in his freezer in San Francisco? Someone will be open and is like, what's this fish doing? He's like, I told him I was going to keep it forever. Forever. <laughs> forever, forever. Oh, well, honestly, I really would. I'd love for you to share the memories with um, my kids, too. I know Justin loves it, and I know yeah. Justin would love the opportunity to be yeah, out there be with me, to get too. Out there. It'd be fun to get out there together. Yeah, well, thank you again so much. For the inside scoop on the fly patterns we've discussed with our guest, check our blog for Flies of the February Room. If you would like to enter the February room, shoot us an email at info at cdfishing.us. Also, remember to subscribe, share, and if we've earned it, give us those five stars. Thanks for dropping by, and remember to go fishing. Go fishing.